Last week we looked at chapter 4 and the single theme of the door to heaven, the throne room of God is open and we have access to the Father. Now there was much more in that scripture than that one single theme. The same for this week as we look at chapter 5, another scene of magnificence dramatically changed though, but we will draw from it one hopefully beautiful picture. Listen then as I read Revelation chapter 5, then I saw in the right hand of him, that is resting on his hand, not enclosed, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, uh, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to open and uh, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, grant us insight. Open our hearts to understand these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just a few things about this vision in order for us to understand these things. The Father is seated on the throne and he's holding the scroll. Then a strong angel calls out, who can open the, the scroll? A couple of ideas have been uh, forwarded, perhaps Gabriel, Gabriel rather, whose name is Strength of God. Uh, one or two commentaries suggest Satan, a strong angel. 
and that his declaration is an accusation. Remember, this is the throne room of God. It's a courtroom scene. And the scroll in the hand of God. Who can take this covenant document and unfold its information? The scroll is sealed with the seven seals and the text in it and around it and on it. And many times covenant deeds, that is uh, the legal documents regarding property, even human property, are in these types of scrolls and they are sealed with seven seals. Inside would be the stipulations of the document, what God requires of man, and perhaps what man has done, and all of the things that we are accountable for. It is sort of God's title deed to the universe, as it was written both outside and on the inside. And then the idea that there was no one to be able to open the scroll just explains John's consternation. Because if the scroll can't be opened in John's mind as he reveals this picture to us, then God's work is done. There's, John knows what's in this scroll. He has seen the writing on the outside of it. And the prospect of it not being, if someone not being able to open it is devastating to him. Because he knows that it is the covenant document that proves God's ownership, not only of the universe, but of the church, his people. If, if it can't be opened, the world continues as it was. The church continuing to decline. The enemies of Christ prevailing. There'd be no justice or relief. And at this, John becomes the one person in all of time who weeps and wails and feels despair in heaven. In a moment, he fears that his hope, everything that he believed and placed his trust in, all that gave him impetus and power in life to continue to be an apostle and to preach the gospel in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, as he is situated on a spit of a rock in the Mediterranean, and he hears the Lord describe the condition of the church, Yet he would hold on to a hope that these things will be overcome. But not if the book, the scroll, cannot be opened. Then there is the lamb, the one standing as if slain. The imagery is this, my friends, that we have a savior in human form or bearing actually the body of humanity, still scarred from the wounds, his head scarred from the thorns, hands and feet scarred from the nails, side pierced by the spear, back peeled off by the whipping. John sees him. And he's the one who overcomes, that word overcomes, relates back to every one of the churches, to the one who overcomes the promises were given, to the one who overcomes, in spite of the 
weak nature of the church in spite of its apostasy to the one who overcomes. And here is the one who overcomes. And he has seven horns. Horn in scripture is the symbol of power. Seven, the number of perfection and completeness. He has seven horns. He's omnipotent. He has seven eyes. He's omniscient and sees all. He, there are the seven spirits. He's omnipresent. In one of my trips over the years into the South Sudan with Don Warren, uh, Don was always in charge of what we did. He was the children's evangelism teacher, and I would gather pastors, and he, we would just go from village to village to village hosting seminars. And Don was always looking for that place where no one had been. No mission work was currently going on in that place. And we were directed to one such place. We found our way there, made our introductions, made our plans. And, but within a couple of days, we noticed some things. In this one village, and it was a village the same as many other villages, except in this. Here, there was no art, no beautification. Nothing that adorned or festooned any walls or any hut doors or even in the common places. In many other villages where we had been, there had been stones whitewashed to show a little pathway. Pottery had etchings on it, whether they were religious etchings or etchings of flowers. And in fact, many, many huts had flowers, little like lays of flowers strewn across it to bring beauty, to bring the aroma of, of sweetness. But this place, nothing. And it was stark. And it was an amazing thing. We had never seen it anywhere else. Anywhere else that shared the same experience of scarce food and poor water, no income, subsistence living, subject to the vagaries of weather, animals, environment, which is often dangerous. But here in this place, people depressed, sad, gloomy, almost idle except for what has to be done next. We spoke with someone and asked, how can this be? And his answer to all this was simply that in that place, there was no hope. No hope. No gospel witness as in other, many other villages where we had been, where the living conditions were so harsh and difficult, yet the gospel in those places brought hope and hope brought beauty, and beauty brought the arts, and, and the arts brought celebration. But in this place, desolate, empty, hard, harsh, with no hope. What is hope? It is said a person can live up to 70 days without food, or that person can exist for nearly 10 days without water. And some very stout practiced people, you can hold your breath and go without oxygen for about six minutes. But one thing is it impossible, it is impossible to live without hope. In English and in our culture today, though, hope is defined as some basic belief that good things will happen. 
It's sort of a filter or a focusing agent through which many of our emotions are strengthened. That we have these positive emotions that emerge from who we are because we have this, this lens of hope that we anticipate better things. Now we can be disappointed or maybe we can be surprised. But mu- much of who we are is filtered through that one place of it's good for me, it's not good for me, and it's because I was hoping for something. We use the word hope quite loosely. We hope for good weather. We hope for our teams to win. We hope for our spouses to treat us well and to be kind or nice. We hope for our kids and, you know, you can fill in the blank. We hope for good things to come. In English, our use of the word hope is something that may or may not happen. And generally speaking, it's really wishful thinking. We don't have any power to make some things happen. We don't have the authority to dictate the world and life and its events around us. But the biblical doctrine of hope is not so variable. It's much more precise and it is much more necessary for the well-being of our lives to have established truths in our heart that shape our thinking, that focus our emotional life and give us well-being, depth of well-being. It, hope, is one of the graces that becomes part of our lives when we are made new believers and it's something that we can cultivate. What you believe the most What occupies your thoughts and that which is the deepest fountain of your sense of self, that inner man of who you are, dictates what you do and what you will feel the most. Biblical hope is this. God the Father has chosen us before the foundation of the world for salvation. God the Son Jesus has done all the work necessary for our salvation, and God the Spirit has applied the benefits of that work to our souls, making us alive. And these certainties are what should be shaping our lives. Whatever else is involved in this redemptive work, there is this. The despair of the human soul, knowing that it is condemned to suffer for the sin, for its sin and wickedness, is transformed into a living hope. The living hope of an eternal life, which they could not have. The living hope of an eternal life and peace with God and a new identity in Christ. That hope is a reality. And that is the substance of our renewed minds. When we are awakened in Christ, part of who we become psychologically is an understanding of hope eternal. That this life, brief as it is, it's a vapor. It's like grass that grows and withers and passes away. We have so little control over what is going on. God blesses us in the transforming and renewing of our hearts and minds in awakening and quickening quickening us into life from death. That hope eternal is born in our hearts. C.S. Lewis was asked to give a definition of hope. His answer It is a continual looking forward to the eternal world. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus and he says to him, 
Uh, I'm Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. We are beings aware of eternity. Creatures that have a sense and an understanding that there's more to who we are and there's more to our five senses and awareness of existence than, than we can smell, taste, touch, feel. The scriptures say God has made everything and he's made it appropriate in its time and he's also set eternity in our hearts. But he has said it yet so that man will not find out the work of God which he has done from the beginning or even to the end. But we have that awareness that there's more to our lives than this. Eternity in your hearts. And what we hope on and when our lives are made new in Christ, hope is born within us so that we are lifted out of the mundane and can transcend out of the misery, hardship, and difficulty of life because it is. It's deeply distressing to be living without hope, eternal hope. Without eternal hope, people basically just simply live lives of desperation, running from here to there, trying to find something that will satisfy them. And for a time it does, but then after a while it no longer does. It's sort of like having your favorite meal. My wife was away for a week and I went to Panera and had corn, summer corn chowder every day. Because I love it until the fourth day. And then I was over it. And we're like that. We look for that which pleases us and gives us a sense of value and appreciation. But it doesn't last. Corn chowder will not make me happy. <laughs> for very long. Or, not only lives of desperation, lives of depression as seen in the village that Don and I visited, but also made known through books. Uh, Don Richardson, author of Peace Child in Papua New Guinea, where he came upon village after village from tribe after tribe who had functional depression. There was this stupefying sadness among all of the people, especially the women. Anxiety as an ailment in our culture today has never been higher than it is in our age, even compared to when and times when there was great national calamity. Mental health issues are scoring on a scale unprecedented in times past. And as a culture, it is as the knowledge of the eternal has been purged from our public forum hopelessness results. It's not freedom from religion. It's not freedom from the sense of I am accountable to a creator. It's misery because they're the, what we need as people, what all people need is that, that 
eternal hope that is born within us to be attached to the very precincts of heaven, such as what John has been describing for the church or writing down so that the church of that day will be lifted out of its malaise and misery. Or we live lives of disgust. You know, when there is no heart open to the eternal view for the next life, people then live with, without regard to consequences. And they live in disgust of other people and are willing to inflict misery upon others through crime and abuse and whatever else because they are disgusted with people. There's only one hope and only one to hope in. The value of hope, <clears throat> excuse me, is not having hope, it's what your hope is in. In recounting experiences, his experiences as a political prisoner in Russia, Alexander Solzhenitsyn tells of a moment when he was on the verge of giving up all hope. He was forced to work 12 hours a day in a hard labor punishment situation while existing on a starvation diet, and he became gravely ill, and the, everyone was expecting him to die. He was expecting to die. He felt death a much more welcome opportunity than to live as one dead. So he stopped working, and he knew that would incur the wrath of the guards, and he would likely be beaten to death. But then quickly he saw another prisoner coming toward him, a prisoner, a fellow Christian, one hobbling with a cane, and that man came close, took the cane, and quickly drew a cross in the sand, and then scratched it out. And in that brief moment, Solzhenitsyn felt all the hope of the gospel flood through his soul, reminding him of his eternal life, which was secured in salvation, which lifted him out of the misery of this life and gave him the, the courage to endure that difficult day and those months of imprisonment because he knew he had the purpose of being a voice to a generation. And I need to live. The only way I can live is my hope of glory and to endure the misery of life. Ours is not a vain hope or a pretentious hope. It's not presumptuous. No, it's a hope grounded in the sure work of God through his son on the cross 2,000 years ago. The songwriter says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have a hope in Christ. And whatever and whenever you are tempted to give up hope or failing in life or being overwhelmed by the hardship and the difficulty of who you are as a sinner and what life is in the world in its deplorable condition, meditate on heaven, on what Christ has done for you. He is the root and the branch the author and the perfecter, the lamb that was slain, the one who is worthy. Well, then how can you get this hope? You need to remember this and to recall these things. These are truths 
It's, we confessed our faith earlier on. We do that almost by rote. But those doctrines become the foundation of the well-being of a soul. Remember this, heaven is a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. It's a gift. And mankind, all mankind, is a sinner. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. We do have a just God. And there are covenant documents that state the wages of sin is death, and that death will be exacted. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And we have a problem with God that God himself has solved for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the God-man who died on the cross, lived a life of perfect obedience to the heavenly father so that there was no stain or blot or sin upon him and because he's the he is the eternal son would take upon him the sins of many there's just one question here for you today who's paying for your sin christ or yourself because if it's christ then we have hope well, how do you receive this hope? By faith, my friends. You receive your salvation by faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, then you will be saved. And you will enjoy, born in your heart and deep in your soul, that eternal sense of hope for what is your life to come. When all of these things became visible to John and he recognized there is the one who has overcome, there is the one who is worthy, then everybody, and it seemed like there must have been thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands, myriads upon myriads coming from all the corners of heaven to sing their praise to the Lamb. They sang a new song. What? note of music do you hear? What single plucking of sound is echoing in your heart? Perhaps the symphony of salvation, which would be a good thing, but perhaps it's none of that. And it's just this gnawing sense that something is missing in my life. Clarence Edward McCartney, a renowned Presbyterian minister who we would consider a patriarch of our denomination, speaks of a painting hanging in the Tate Gallery in London back in the early 1900s. It was a painting by Frederick Watts with the title Hope. It is the picture of a very poor female figure slouched upon a large globe of the world and at first glance it appears as an image of pathos, sadness and regret, deep despair. And she's blindfolded 
so she cannot look ahead or see what is going on around her. And in her hand she holds a lute, sort of like a guitar, of which all of the strings but one are broken. The broken strings, according to McCartney, as understood of the painting by Watts were the shattered expectations and the bitter disappointments of the world and the blindfolded girl is touching that one string with her hand and her lovely head is bent toward it in the closest attention earnestly waiting to catch a note of hope from that wire and so it was that Watts, the, uh, the artist, had conceived of hope. Triumphant over the world's sin and sorrow and its pain and its disaster. And the purpose of the painting was to give an image of hope eternal in the face of utter destruction. McCartney reflected that that painting, more than any other artistic portrayals of the condition of mankind and the world, showed so very clearly the need for hope and the need for what we need to hope in. Every one of us, we have our hearts set on things that give us motivation or satisfaction. Something and things that provide an inner power and urgency to cope with life or to give us meaning. What is your heart set on? Is it the salvation of your soul and the eternal life that awaits you and that you are not your own? This world is not your home. You have now been made alive in Christ in order to walk faithfully in this world to bring Him praise and honor and glory and power and blessing. But we are so easily distracted to think of and to focus upon only the small circle of time that is around us. At best, it's in hours, sometimes even days. Rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus and our hearts upon eternity. So, is there a note of music playing in your heart today? Something calling you, seizing your interest, beckoning you, promising you a sweet note of something else. I say this, come to Jesus. That note doesn't play without the sovereign opening your heart to understand what it means. And there's a symphony of sound awaiting for us and for you. Come to Jesus. If you've known that chorus and it's but a weak echo of what it used to be. Renew, my friends. Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Rejoice evermore. Amen.